This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. I lost two loved ones this year who were both under hospice care, and I never could have gotten through that experience without hospice's help. They're just wonderful people. They provide all the services that I needed. Earlier this month, former President Jimmy Carter announced he's, quote, decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family, receiving hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. Hospice care in the United States began as a social movement in the 1960s and 70s. A service that was once provided mainly by nonprofits is now a $22 billion industry. More than 70% of hospice clinics are for-profit, and the rate of Americans choosing hospice is going up. A 2019 report in the New England Journal of Medicine found that half of Americans dying of natural causes spend their final days in hospice. And for many families, it's been transformative. So today we'll check in on hospice care in this country, what it is, how it works, and how to prepare for it. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more from you and our guests after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's start the conversation with Carol Garrett, who lives in Arkansas. Her husband Tom was in hospice care for two weeks before he passed away, and Carol now volunteers with hospice patients. She joins us now to share her story. Carol, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. This is a privilege and an honor to be a part of this uh, discussion today. Well, take us back, if you would, to to 2020. Uh, Your husband had been diagnosed with liver cancer in 2018. How did you uh, make the decision to transition to hospice care? Well, I will say this. First of all, hospice to both of us back then meant that's where you go to die. Uh That's all we ever thought of. So, you know, we never thought of that as an option. And his oncologist that was never part of the treatment plan or a discussion. So once he got to around May of 2020 and his body was deteriorating, the cancer spreading, the oncologist is still wanting to try all these experimental drugs. Mm. I took it upon myself to call a friend of ours who works for Arkansas Hospice as a nurse. And I said, just tell me how this works. And she's like, oh, 
She goes, I'm sorry you had to call, but here's how it works. When she explained the services that they could provide, that my husband, his wish was to be at home, to be cared by people that love me, be surrounded by his family. I'm like, sign us up. Mm. How do we do this? So, I mean, that was our first um, connection to Arkansas Hospice. Um, I will, I will tell you this: that has, that was the most rewarding experience that um, we both had ever gone through. For him to be at home, the care, the team that they provide. We had a chaplain, a social worker, a nurse, a home health aide that would visit us several times a week. Um, we could contact them, or I could, I would say, 24-7 on the phone. And many times I would call, and I will just say it this way, they walked me off the ledge mm-hmm. because it, it was just a, a frightening experience, but they made it so much more, um, I, I, how about bearable? Mm. Carol, for that. I, you made that phone call to your friend there, and I wonder what happened next. You, you learned about what Arkansas Hospice offered. Uh, w- what happened after you hung up the phone? Um, so you do have to be referred by your physician. Obviously, you'd have to have a medical need to be in hospice. But once, I mean, that took like probably within hours. Uh, hospice came out and visited with us. And this is seriously no lie. It was around three o'clock in the afternoon. My husband was by then, he was pretty much bedbound and sleeping almost all the time. I met with the hospice nurse, and I said, I'm really sorry, but if you need to talk to my husband, I'll have to go wake him up. She's like, no, 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 no. We can talk with you. And so um, we made the decision that day. She said, and I never felt pressured. And it, it was never, here's what we we um, are going to do for you, but what do you want us to do for you? It was always they put it back on us to say, here's what we offer, but how can we help you? How can we best serve you? By the end of the day, we had a bedside commode. We had a, um, a what do you call that? Um, oh, a chair to sit in the, a shower chair. We had an oxygen tank. We had a hospital bed. Everything we needed, they supplied for us, and they brought it out that day. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, why isn't this more talked about? Why is it just, it's not just when you are ready to die. Because he wanted to live life on his own terms, But I will tell you, as soon as we made that connection to Arkansas Hospice, they immediately came out, they assessed our needs, and they met our needs. And never once during the two weeks that he lived in hospice did we ever feel alone. And I will tell you, hospice is not just for the patient. It is for the whole family. Carol, you mentioned something that I want to come back to, and, and that is this this is an organization that, that supported you and your husband, and you've talked about uh, families surrounding somebody who's uh, heading mm-hmm. toward his or her end of life. What is that relationship like uh, in those final days and hours between uh, somebody who's performing hospice care and, and the family of the patient? They would come and visit, and, and they could... They can tell they're clinical when when someone is getting imminent or closer to um, transitioning, okay? So uh, this was on a Friday morning. The nurse comes out to check on my husband, and she said, "Um, everything's looking good. I'm going to come back in a couple hours. She came back, and she goes, things have drastically changed, Carol. She said, your husband is imminent. Whoever you need to call, you can have them come or have them come. And she didn't leave. She stayed. And so... um, Thankfully, my husband did transition within the next couple hours. I was able to stay with him, and that's exactly what we wanted, for me to be with him and his family to be around him. But this is where um, I applaud, I will say, 
Arkansas Hospice is that um, after my husband passed away, I went in and talked to the hospice nurse. She's sitting in there, and she goes, Carol, I want you to go back in there and be with him, and I want you to take as long as you want to. As long as you need, you just go in there and be with him. When you're ready, and only when you're ready, you come out and tell me, that's when we'll call the funeral home. Now, I couldn't even tell you how long I was in there because it did, did seem like it was like forever. Mm-hmm. But they gave you the time to grieve. And I, I can only think back because my, my dad and mom both passed away in a, in a hospital setting. You're surrounded. It's all clinical. It's all the lights. And it's, it's not, this is going to sound weird again. It's not intimate. And I'm, oh, that's I not understand. a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was when, when I could lie in our bed and I could just hold him and I just... You know, you always say all the things. I'm so sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I wish it, I wish we had more time together. But I knew where he was. We knew where he was going. And so, um, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'd I'd love to ask uh, how often you think you think back on those moments and uh, how you reflect on on your experience with hospice in those days and, and weeks that you spent with Tom there at the end. I couldn't have asked for a, a better experience. It's if I had to look looking back now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's exactly what I wanted, would have wanted hospice to be for me, is our experience. And I, I don't think we're like the odd, odd man out here. I really believe that's exactly how Arkansas Hospice operates, is how they, how they treated us and cared for myself and my husband is exactly how they treat others. The only downside is I wish we hadn't waited so long. I wish we'd have gone in sooner because I really feel like his quality of life, which is so important— could have been better for both of us at home. That was Carol Garrett. Carol, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Really appreciate it. Now I'm going to bring in Eric Widera. He's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He focuses on geriatrics and palliative care. Also with us from Maryland is Bill Dombey. He's the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Eric Widera, let me start with you, and I wonder if you could give us a little history here. I know the the first hospice inpatient clinic in America opened up in Connecticut in 1980. What was hospice care initially designed to do? What was the vision at the beginning? So the original vision came out of actually uh, London, the UK, with Dame Cicely Saunders, who was both a nurse, a social worker, and a physician. And the focus was to treat total pain. That's not just physical, but psychological, spiritual, and social pain for people who are approaching the end of lives. And that's currently still kind of how we think about hospice care. Is It's for people who are approaching the end of their lives, whose focus is on their quality of life rather than prolongation or cure of diseases. And it treats this total pain concept, again, not just physical, but psychological, spiritual, and social. We've seen hospice grow over the last four decades. Some of the things that have been really great as far as increasing amount of people who have been enrolled in hospice, who get cared for at the end of life. You mentioned earlier, half of Medicare uh, decedents have had hospice care at the end of life. We've also seen some significant changes over the last decade with a lot more money going into hospice through things like private equity. I'm very curious sort of uh, if it's possible to characterize how long people go into hospice for, when, when you look at such a large group of people, um, is it possible to generalize how, how long people customarily are in hospice care? Yeah, so we actually have pretty good data on this. Um, and what we see is, is that uh, 
you know, on average, people stay in hospice uh, for uh, about three months, but we also see half the people die within 18 days, which kind of doesn't make sense when I say it out loud. But that generally means is that, um, like Carol's case, her husband lived for two weeks on hospice. And we see that frequently with hospice for cancer care is that the, the median length of stay is pretty short on the order of, you know, a couple weeks. We also see for other diseases like dementia, COPD, that some of these other diseases, the length of stay tends to be longer than that. And what we see, the reason that the average length of stay is much longer than, than half the people dying in, in 18 days is because there's a long tail. So we have a lot of people who live longer, um, sometimes a couple years even, in hospice care. I would say that that's not very common, but that tends to pull the average out towards about three months. Bill Dombey, uh, something I didn't get a chance to ask Carol about is she described uh, all that was brought to her home, all of the equipment, all the care that, that her husband received is is the cost and how at a time when that's probably the last thing one wants to think about or have to navigate, um, that, that is something that, that, that one has to consider. Um, is affordability an issue when it comes to end-of-life care? Well, the, the cost really does not land in the hands of the patient or their family. Virtually all hospice care is without any co-payment or cost sharing uh, with with the beneficiary. And so what Carol experienced uh, is part of what we call a bundled payment to the hospice, where everything the individual needs uh, for purposes of of treatment in their hospice care uh, is provided by the hospice and generally provided without any cost whatsoever. So that would include drugs, all the medical equipment, the nurses and every other discipline of care that, that Carol mentioned. So it is actually a, a very refined kind of model, which puts risk on the hospice uh, to, to do the right thing from a business standpoint and a care standpoint at the same time. Eric, I, I wonder what the conversations are like among you and other faculty at, at the medical school, the conversations that you hear in hospitals about this. How much of this is kind of clinician or physician driven? Have you detected a change in how those in the medical profession uh, approach end of life? I certainly have. Um, you know, I started med school in 1998. Um, and I think I got one lecture, which was an elective on death and dying at that time. Um, and I feel like over the lower course of the last uh, two and a half decades, that has significantly changed where it becomes uh, a, a bigger part of the curriculum for medical students and health, other healthcare providers, that we've seen a rapid growth in the palliative care movement, um, not just hospice, but palliative care, which is different than hospice, but we've seen more people enter into that field. It's one of the top specialties right now in the U.S. Um, and more physicians willing to talk about this and think about death and dying as part of the normal part of living. Um, I still think we have a significant way to go for many med student med schools. It's still not a part of their formal curriculum. Uh, like me as a med student, many folks just have to enter it through electives rather than it being like a mandatory rotation that they go into. So we, we have a lot of room to grow, but I've seen a change over the last two decades of practicing medicine. Bill, we heard from Carol, who is in Arkansas. There was a local hospice organization with whom she worked. When, when you look at this whole country, um, how available are these resources to people um, who live in different places, different communities across the country? There are over 6,000 hospices all across the country. 
virtually accessible everywhere. Uh, some difficulties in, in rural areas as there is for healthcare, generally speaking. And the, the issue is not so much whether there is a hospice available in your community, it's whether you're aware of what hospice can do for the patient and for the patient's family members. So the barrier is less the infrastructure and more just the awareness side of it. Jonathan tweeting, my grandmother, who insisted that she would soon die of a stroke, was moved to hospice from her nursing home. A little over a week later, she was discharged from hospice back to the nursing home. She then had a stroke and she died the next day back in the same hospice. Another voicemail here I want to play also from from Lorraine. My father was not terminally ill, was put on hospice, and was, quote, unquote, uh, taken out by the local hospice here. He was over-medicated, overdosed, and it was a horrible, horrible death. So I am not a fan of hospice. He was not terminally ill, and they charged thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to Medicare to overdose him. Eric, I'd love for you to to respond to that voicemail that we got from Lorraine. Obviously, this isn't something that's that's going to work well or be the best solution for for everyone. But how do you respond to that? The timeline for for entering hospice. And I suppose that plays into this as well. When one decides that this is the 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 right path or the path one wants to go down. Yeah, I, I think there are you know a couple myths and a couple things that we should talk about with the variation of hospice care is that not all hospices are built the same. And I know we'll get to that. So I want to just talk about kind of who hospice is for. You know, we mentioned a little bit earlier how often hospice is used. A quarter of patients have stays less than five days. A half, I mentioned, have stays of less than 18 days in hospice, and three quarters have stays less than three months. What we see is the longer somebody's in hospice, generally the, the better care that they get they get, the hospice gets to know them, and we see that in some of the data. Um, I think the other big myth that, that we see is, is two things that I heard from this, is that one, hospice, some people feel like hospice is a place people go to. Mm. Most hospice can happen, uh, hospice can actually happen anywhere. Most ha- hospice actually happens in people's homes. Um, and if it's not in their homes, often in assisted living facilities or nursing homes uh, where they go to. And the other big one is that for a lot of people, when we talk about hospice, um, we often have to approach it as the H word, um, is thinking that um, people think when people go into hospice, we're going to start morphine at the end of life. And that's what we do. We're just going to inject them with morphine and they're going to die. You know, let me tell you, um, while pain management is incredibly important for hospice care and end of life care, opioids like morphine do nothing to treat the total pain. Hmm. When somebody questions the meaning of life or the loss of freedom or their dignity or grief or fear of dying, opioids don't help for that. And Mm. high-quality hospices know that, and they treat total pain. And they also recognize, and we have have data on this, what's important to people at the end of life? While pain management and symptom management tends to be very important, we also know what's important is having providers who one trusts, Mm -hmm. having having the cognitive ability to be there with family members and talk to family members. There are many things that are important to them that are not solved by just opioids or morphine. Mm. And when I think about high-quality hospices, it's those that treat total pain. So I recognize that there are experiences like the ones that we just heard that where family members regret hospice care, where they feel bad. Um, And man, 
I think we really need to address those issues and recognize that um, there is a lot of variation in the care that hospice provides. But I also think we can't forget the stories like Carol, where we hear that hospice does provide amazing care to a lot of individuals. We're discussing hospice care. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the conversation and talk about the difference between for-profit and non-profit hospice providers. For-profit providers make up 70% of the hospice field. Research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found the number of hospice operations owned by private equity firms tripled from 2011 to 2019. ProPublica reporter Ava Kaufman investigated for-profit hospice care, and she spoke with Slate's What's Next podcast last month. Well, we know that, you know, 73% of, of hospices are are for-profit. Of course, not all of them are profiteering, but there are, you know, clear indicators when, you know, a hospice isn't even participating in, you know, the kind of basic standards of care. It's pretty clear if you have a hospice that is only signing up a few patients or is signing up patients really quickly, um, reaching their maximum billing limit, uh, dumping those patients and moving them over. Bill Dombey, I'll turn to you first here, and I wonder if you could enumerate, just describe for us the main differences between for-profit and non-profit hospice providers. Well, to, to start with, all hospices must meet the same conditions of participation and provide the same benefit, but there's a lot of flexibility in such. When, when you look at the differences, you know, a for-profit provider of services, you know, is probably still putting patient first because that's good for business. But the balance between patient and business may not be uh, the same from one for-profit to another. And then again, from one not-for-profit to another. So when, when you look at the, the differences, you find vast differences even within the for-profit segment of the hospice community and differences within the not-for-profit segment. So what that goes back to is the need for the individuals considering hospice to research their particular hospice's performance and understand, you know, is the balance, the correct balance of a patient first one. Hmm. The other elements of it, like I said, are truly identical conditions of participation, set up uh, licensure requirements, set up uh, the standards for the delivery of care, the disciplines of caregiving the payment system and all. So for-profits don't get paid any more or less than not-for-profits in terms of serving patients. So you've got to kind of peel away layers uh, of the provider to get a better understanding as to whether this is a good for-profit or not-so-good for-profit. And likewise, a good not-for-profit or not-so-good 
not for profit. I want to dip back into our, our inbox. Jane emailing here, hospice is wonderful. My late husband was a hospice chaplain. I was a hospice director. My only caveat is that recently there are a lot of for-profit hospices and they're mostly substandard and only in it for the money. I would recommend people stick with the not-for-profits, those usually affiliated with hospitals or medical centers or visiting nurses. Eric, let me turn to you. We heard from Bill there, his perspective on this. Let me get yours. From, from what you've seen, do you, do you see demonstrable differences between for-profit and non-profit hospices? Yeah, so I work in the hospital too. So uh, we refer a lot of patients that we see to hospices uh, throughout Northern California. Um, and even as a provider who does this, who does palliative care in hospice, I struggle over the last 10 years because it feels like every day there is a new hospice that I've never heard about before that popped up. I don't know anything about the quality of care that they deliver. Um, I've never had anybody referred to them before. Um their name always sounds like an 80s like you know toy that um I've heard about like Care Bear Hospice or something like that. And I think it's it's a big challenge that we face in this field is how do you tell the good from the bad? In general, what we see is that for-profit hospices score less well on let's say caregiver surveys of the hospice care that they receive. Um, but we also see, like Bill said, a lot of variation. So there are some for-profit hospices that do better than average and some for-profit hospices that do a lot worse. And how do you separate the wheat from the chaff is a challenge that I don't think we have really quite figured out. Um, hospice Compare, we mentioned before, is a website you can go to. But even with that, I, I struggle. Um, and I, I do think just the concept of commercialization of dying is something that that we struggle with too. Is that you know for these private equity firms, they're they got to make a profit. That's why they're getting into it. It's not because they're doing it because of the good nature of their hearts. Is they're trying to find efficiencies, and to find efficiencies, you either have to reduce the number of staff visits. You have to have um, focused people who are going to live longer because you know, hospice gets a certain amount of money per day, about 200 to $300, depending on where you live. So if you have people enrolled in hospice for a longer period of time, you make more profit. So that's another efficiency that they can do. Or you just focus on certain areas, like you get as many people in a particular nursing home, so you don't have to drive around. That's another efficiency. So we also see in the data that for-profit hospices tend to have longer length of stay, focused more on individuals who are living in nursing homes um, and assisted living facilities, and potentially provide less um, skilled staff visits to people's homes. And those are the efficiencies that drive profit. Bill, let me pull something out of uh, both answers, the one that we just heard from Eric and what you said just a moment ago, and, and that is a, a difficulty in understanding how these individual institutions work and what the standards are, and it makes me wonder how much oversight there is generally uh, of hospices, both private, nonprofit, and, and for-profit hospice providers. I know that a medical background is not required to open a hospice facility. We'll leave aside Eric's complaint about the name of some, some of these as well. But in terms of assessing their uh, how, how good they are or how well they take care of patients, who oversees it? Who, who sets the standards and who makes sure that they're, that they're hitting them? Yeah, on paper, there's a very elaborate oversight system. But today, we would be very critical as to whether that oversight system is doing the job that it should be doing. Eric mentioned the pop-up hospice that seems to be prevalent, particularly in California and in the L.A. area. And we've been meeting with the main oversight body that's called the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services for a number of reasons. One, 
we supported and it was passed by Congress to have more frequent surveys of hospices because a hospice could go years without anybody even taking a look at their operation. Now it's going to be required to be at a minimum of every three years. And if there are issues, even much more frequently than that. But California stands out as an example. You mentioned the ProPublica article. Mm -hmm. And they and, and others, including the industry itself, noticed that in the L.A. area, there were hundreds and hundreds of hospices being licensed by the state located in the same office building with often the same person listed as the administrator mm. of the hospice. I mean, a red flag beyond red flags that something's not right there. And so we've been working to get the Medicare program to step into that mix, and they have recently done so. Uh, but we have really pushed for increased oversight and targeted when all these red flags appear. And it, it's not rocket science to pick out when something's not right, you know, even on paper on that. So again, the, the design of oversight is fairly comprehensive. The implementation of the oversight falls short of its intended purpose. And so that's why, you know, I, I'll repeat what I said earlier. You need to check out, you know, the hospice before you say, I want them to care for me in the last days of my life. An email here from Rodney uh, on for-profit hospice clinics. I understand that there's a cap on allowed services for long-term care. They actually deny interventions or the ability to go beyond a certain level of care. Could that possibly lead to undesirable consequences? Bill, do you want to uh, try to answer that question? Well, in fact, the hospice benefit under Medicare, which is by far the predominant payer, well over 90% of hospice days are Medicare covered, does not have a limit in terms of the length of care for that individual although they must meet a standard of a life expectancy of six months or less if it runs its normal course. So that listener's comments, uh, you know, is an indication of dealing with the problematic provider if they're telling them that there are limits uh, that are within that. Now, there are limits as to the resources available, and family members often become a major part of the delivery of services to individuals who are on hospice services. But if if a hospice tells a provide tells a patient we can't give you care anymore because you've reached your limit on days something's wrong. Mm. Kathy tweeting my biggest concern is the assumption that family members are able to provide twenty four seven care in the home. That's a lot to ask of most families. She writes care could go on for months. Eric, how much control do patients have over the type of hospice care their medical insurance is is going to cover? How much autonomy does one have to pick the provider they think is best? Well, it, it's challenging as I hear Bill talk about this too. Is that um, it's it is incredibly important to to see about the quality of care that you're being referred to uh, in particular hospices. I think that the challenge is when you have you know late referrals to hospice where you may have a week or two weeks of life left to live. You don't have a lot of time to shop around. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that we face in the hospice communities, in addition to the rapid growth of all these different hospices, is how do you tell the good from the bad? Um, and for family members, that's a really hard thing. They often rely on healthcare providers to make that choice. They may not even have a choice if they live in a particular nursing home that only refers to a particular hospice agency. These are all things that we as a field have to address. Um, and we have to figure out how to actually help family members tell the, the good from the bad. I think one of them is just the simple thing is call up the hospice agency and talk. Talk about the services that they offer. 
get realistic expectations. Uh, and it's 100% clear is that ho- home hospice does not provide 24-7 caregiver support. I think setting expectations that what hospices can realistically deliver in their homes is incredibly important is that the vast majority of care, 24 days, 24 hours, seven days a week, is delivered by family members or other informal caregivers, um, including having to privately pay for them. Mm. So talking with hospice about what they can actually deliver, how often will they show up in your homes, what kind of services, what kind of medical equipment can they deliver, and trying to get a sense from others. Um, have they had any experience with a hospice agency that you're going to choose? Knowing that the biggest challenge here is for many folks, um, you know, a quarter of people die in hospice within five days. You just don't have a lot of time to shop around. Bill, what are some of the factors that contribute to someone being unaware their loved one could be eligible for hospice care or it might be something to consider? So we've got issues relative to advanced care planning and uh, an awareness of what the options are within individuals, their families, but also within healthcare professionals. So the experience you know, that was just relayed by, by that listener is not an uncommon one. And one which really means we need to have a, a different kind of a culture ourselves, generally as a society, one which focuses a bit more on advanced care planning advanced directives and the like, so that decisions do not need to be made in some hasty fashion. It has been a 40-year effort to get the healthcare community at large to recognize the value of hospice services, and I still think we have a ways to go. As as Eric has indicated, we've made a lot of progress with one out of every two Medicare decedents having used hospice in the last year of their life, but the job's not done. Eric, in the minute that we have left here, I'm sure that there are a few listeners in our audience who are facing this decision right now, and I, I wonder what advice you, you would give them uh, as they weigh their options. Yeah. I mean, I think the one important thing, especially you know, going back to Jimmy Carter, I've seen headlines where it says that you know, Jimmy Carter is giving up interventions or people talk about you know, giving up care. And I think the, the main thing I just want to highlight is hospice is, is not that. That's Eric Wadera. He's a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, focusing on geriatrics and palliative care. Bill Dombey joined us as well from the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU and American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from SAP Concur, a leading brand for integrated travel expense and invoice management solutions. With SAP Concur Solutions, you'll be ready to take on whatever the market throws at you next. Learn more at concur.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Linda Mood Bell. Linda Mood Bell's summer instruction for reading, comprehension, and math can help students catch up or get ahead. Summer instruction is designed to help children feel more confident, prepared, and excited about learning and school in the fall. Linda Mood Bell's evidence-based approach is individualized for all types of students with challenges that affect learning, including dyslexia. Learn more at lindamoodbell.com NPR. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists. 
to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.